Stories and voices that are intertwined, connected by one thread. Building internet and communication community networks. Hello, I'm Renata Porto. I'm from Sao Paulo, Brazil. I'm here to take you on a journey around the world. We are going to get to know experiences of internet and communications community-led networks throughout this 12-episode season. In the ninth episode of the series, we'll get to know a little bit about BARN, broadband from the rural north. This is a community benefit society in England, which means that the organization must serve the broader interests of the community and that any surpluses has to go right back into the community. The members of the community themselves own the initiative that takes internet connection to the inhabitants of many villages in the region. We've done it, and we've done it really, really well, and it works, and it's, it's viable, and it's economical, and it's owned by the people, and it's looked after by the people. This is Chris Conder, one of Barnes' founders, who was recognized from the Queen Elizabeth II for her work in taking internet connection to rural communities. In this episode, you also get to know Steve Song, an expert in the realm of community networks. He is a researcher and a consultant on technologies that enable wider access to the Internet, especially in African countries and other emerging regions. We actually need a, a multiplicity of business models and technologies to provide access to uh, affordable access to all. Are you ready? So let's go on this trip. Routing for Communities, an audio journey tracing community connectivity around the world. At first, we had a bit of technical issues regarding the sound in our video call with Chris Conder, but she quickly put on her earphones with a mic and the problem was solved. Then our team started the conversation with her. And how are you? How's been your week? It's fine, yes. We're uh, busy digging a, an area out on the farm, so I'm moving trees at the moment. So I thought, well, I'll come in for a brew and see what happens with this call, and then that, that gives me a bit of a rest, and then I'll go back to moving trees. They're digging them out, I'm planting them. As you may have already noticed, Chris lives on a farm. It is located in northern England in a small village called Ray. It is part of the civil parish of Ray Whitbottom in the city of Lancaster district in Lancashire County. Ray's local population does not reach even 500. Half of them are over 50 and almost everyone is white. Wikipedia has this to say about Ray. The village has a general store with a post office. The village also has a pub, the Georgian Dragon, a tea room, Bridge House Farm Tea Rooms, and the Bridge House Bistro. The Wikipedia entry also contains the following sentence, Ray has a wireless broadband network. (music) 
Now let's go back to Chris and Barn to get to know a little bit about this initiative that has already connected over 7,000 homes in England's northwestern rural areas. The initiative, besides counting on the work of volunteers who contribute with local infrastructure, employs some 80 people in the region to run the network on a daily basis. Uh, hi, my name's Chris Conder. I'm 69 years old at the moment. I've been involved with trying to get internet connectivity to my community since I was 40. So I've been doing this for uh, 29 years. Um, we got more active in the year 2000 because so many other people and villages were getting broadband and our dial-up was awful. And it was a, it's, it's a very long, long story, but We started in about 2000 getting serious. In 2003, we got involved with a local university, Lancaster University, with the Network Research Special Projects Unit. And we sort of stalked them and nagged them until eventually they helped us build a research project in our village. I lived on a farm above the village of Ray, so I'm a farmer's wife. I was still active on the farm. I had three children uh, and I was a mobile hairdresser. As a hairdresser, I went round all the community, the nursing homes, to people's houses, uh, people with children, older people. And I talked about the internet and getting the internet to our families and businesses and asked their opinion of it. So over quite a big area that I worked, I listened to what people wanted and it was exactly what I wanted. And so we formed a group and like I say, we nagged the university to help us. The partnership with the university developed only gradually. At first, the university's broadband connectivity signal did not reach small villages, so more studies were needed working with the members of the community. But there wasn't enough funding then nor was there government support for such development. Chris reported that, even without broadband access in the village, there was a computer club. There, people, mostly older citizens, started to learn to use spreadsheets and other apps, how to use search engines and shop online, as well as how to burn their favorite songs on CDs. These were ways of raising interests and motivating people to use digital technologies. In the early 2000s, Chris and the others organized themselves to seek solutions to the internet access gap they experienced. In order to overcome financing issues, they raised money amongst the inhabitants. Some initial steps were also made possible with government funds. Chris tells us they submitted a proposal for the Project Access Open Call, which was a £20 million pot of money from the Northwest Development Agency to take up innovative projects to bring digital connectivity to rural areas. However, they did not get enough money to implement all that they needed. So, Chris and another community member, Debbie, carried out the research themselves, allowing the funds received from the agency to be invested in the infrastructure costs for a shared wireless network, which were basically 
six mesh Wi-Fi boxes and antenna. That's how they build a network that works with their own hands. With a wireless connection to the university, they were able to reach a little over 20 clients. But as soon as YouTube and iPlayer, a streaming service linked to BBC, began to grow in popularity in the community, the network was no longer able to cope with demand. If someone decided to download something, they overloaded the network, which left the others unable to connect. That happened around 2005. A few years later, the seeds of a new initiative were planted. People from eight villages in the region gathered around a funding management committee. Each of those people brought different skills to the pot. So one was an accountant, one was an engineer, one was a doctor. There was all different mindset of people on the management committee. And Barry drew up a business plan, which we kept inspecting and looking at and adding things to. But it was Barry's genius plan. And we went to the city council, who were going to be our sponsors, because we we weren't anybody. We were just a management team of, of community nutcases. So the project would be fronted by the city council, who were fully supportive of getting the internet to eight of their parishes at, at no cost to themselves, because this was a grant. And so three quarters of a million pounds, according to our plans, would have built a backbone. So from a breakout point of dark fiber, we could then feed our own fiber to our eight communities. Barry, mentioned by Chris, is Barry Ford, a retired professor from Lancaster University who was an essential element of the project. He, Chris, and other funding members turned Barn into reality. The organization was established in 2011 after long discussions and conversations in the community. It was a collective cooperation. In the beginning, the plan was to take fiber to what they used to call digital parish pumps, so that each community could use the structure however they saw fit, be it with landlines, Wi-Fi hotspots, or even fiber for people's houses. But the plan grew and ultimately, the idea was to take fiber to everybody's homes, which would significantly increase the project's costs. Subscribers' payment would no longer be enough. So, talking to the local postman, Chris came up with an idea. And the village postman was having his hair cut with the village hairdresser. And the village hairdresser was droning on like she did, instead of about holidays, which most hairdressers drone on about, she was droning on about broadband and how this, the original plan was to go through the roads and pavements. And this postman, who drove all over those eight parishes, just like the hairdresser, said, well, if you're going from Quorma to Ray, for example, which was my village, Quorma was the breakout point, and you're thinking of going through Lancaster and through Caton and through all the roads, which will take forever, why don't you just go over the fells? And you just skip over the fells through the easy peat, dig through that, and you're in rain a jiffy. And it's not going to cost you very much because the farmers will dig it for you because the farmers on the fells are desperate for a good connection and do it that way. So that was the actual seed that 
started the theory that yes, we can do it ourselves. Thus, many volunteers were recruited amongst the neighbors, which not only lowered their costs but involved the community even more. They negotiated licenses for free access through their lands and shared resources such as shovels, excavators, drills, and other equipments. The first village to be connected was Cranmore in 2012, and in Condor's village, Ray, almost 20 kilometers away, broadband became a reality in 2014. A few hours after our video call, Chris sent us a three-minute video produced by herself in order to tell the story of the excavation process to install fiber in her land. Nine o'clock in the morning, I decided I was going to lay some fiber, so I got on the phone, I got hold of Fiberstream, who brought the fiber in the car, we had to cut the side off to get it in, 12-core single-mode fiber, I rang Lucid, who were the lighting team, and I rang the Diggerman. By three o'clock, the team was complete, and we set off on our fiber dig. This is the mold plow in action, as you can see. The biggest mess it's making is flattening the grass. Another interesting element worth mentioning about Barnes' long history is their relationship with government and public policies. Chris is very critical of the support provided by the United Kingdom's government and administration to local communities. In Barnes' case, for instance, it took many years until initiatives and resources finally arrived. The system that has worked is that of vouchers. Barn is registered as a service provider with the UK Gigabit Voucher Scheme, for which funding is provided by the Department for Science, Innovation and Technology. Through this scheme, funding reaches the communities in the form of vouchers, where if you connect a house in a rural area, you get £1,500 as benefit from the government, without any cost. It works like this. In areas lacking connectivity infrastructure and where a license to operate is granted, when people start using the service in a residence or company, the government sends an email to the client seeking their feedback. If the client is satisfied with the service, the government sends the voucher to the provider. The system provides a guaranteed source of funding without the need to raise money in the parishes. According to the website cable.co.uk, the average cost for broadband in the United Kingdom is around £0.86 per megabit per month, almost $1. Barnes' official price is closer to £0.03 per megabit. In other words, the network built by the community offers high-quality connection at significantly lower cost for the users. We've done it, and we've done it really, really well, and it works, and it's, it's viable, and it's economical, and it's owned by the people, and it's looked after by the people. It's built so much community cohesion. It is unbelievable how everybody in the community has got to know everybody else and gone on to help the next community and the next parish and got to know them. And they're still supportive now. Now we're crossing the ocean from England to Canada to talk to Steve Song. 
He is a researcher and a consultant on digital technologies and an expert when it comes to debates on community-led networks. Uh, my name is Steve Song. I'm a policy um, advisor with the, um, the APC LockNet project, um, providing support on policy and regulatory issues for the project. Um, I do that half-time. The other half of my time I spend as a policy advisor to the Mozilla Corporation, who make the Firefox browser. I'm a Canadian South African, and, uh, and I first, I think, became interested in the transformative potential of access to the Internet uh, when uh, I started working with APC in the early 1990s in South Africa to facilitate access to email um, for those working within the mass democratic movement in South Africa. We kept on going with Steve by asking him what would be some of the challenges in terms of sustainability for community networks. He tells us that, on the one hand, there is a regulatory environment which allows, or not, that they prosper. There are cases such as the United Kingdom, North America, or even some European countries, where one does not need a license to establish a community-led network. All it takes is an antenna in your house, and you can start providing the service. If you charge for the service, then you will need to be registered as a company. But aside from that, there is no other immediate requirement. But in most countries worldwide, this is not the reality. In fact, in almost all the countries, you need a license to offer any type of internet service. This comes with implications, such as understanding the sometimes complex administrative processes involved in applying for a license. Communities can face a variety of other challenges. For example, some countries have duties and taxes on the import of equipment, which can be an obstacle for rural and or low-income communities. There is also the more general difficulty of accessing funds and financing. Typically, community-led networks get started with grants from civil society organizations, among other articulations, seeking resources to acquire equipment. But that doesn't guarantee long-term sustainability. I kind of, um, I'm of the, the belief that you, it's always good to start out as you mean to continue as an organization. If your intent is to recover costs from the community, that's not something you spring on them later, right? That's not something that uh, is easy to introduce uh, later when people are used to having a service for free. It's something that needs to, really needs to be baked into the planning from the very beginning. And this is complicated by the fact that in some areas, there is never really going to be a full business case for community networks, right? In some of the most remote, in some of the poorest areas, the ability to pay is so low that it's never just going to be a simple business, that there is always going to be a need for some kind of subsidy and you know, some kind of support to be able to enable you know, uh, access in these regions where providing access is the most challenging and where ability to pay is at its lowest. We talk about them as, as a range of solutions to access challenges. And this is a kind of shift that is being made globally to recognize that, well, the biggest operators are not going to connect 
everyone because their business models simply don't extend you know into into rural areas and that we actually need a a multiplicity of business models and technologies to provide access to uh, affordable access to all Among the various works, texts, consultancies and lectures Steve has delivered throughout his career, he has become well known for that metaphor about filling a glass jar with stone. It basically works like this. If you try to fill a jar with large stones, there will be a lot of uncovered gaps. So, aside from big stones, other smaller ones and of different sizes are needed so that the jar can be completely filled. Filling the jar is the same as fulfilling the needs of affordable access to communication for all. Small operators, both for-profit and not-for-profit, are needed to fill the connectivity gaps left by large operators. Policymakers and regulators need to recognize the role that community-owned infrastructure can play by providing enabling regulation and financial incentives to nurture their development. And we have reached the end of this episode. As always, I hope the stories that were told by voices from different parts of the world were a source of learning and hope while at the same time leading us to act together and collectively. If you'd like to know more about Barn and its work in Northern England, as well as research and other discussions by Steve Song, look up the website we have left in this episode's description. If you've liked this podcast, please help us to share these voices. Recommend this podcast to those you know will appreciate it as well. You can follow the season on the main podcast platforms or on APC's website, routingforcommunities.apc.org. We'll meet again soon with new experiences and stories from community-led networks that are also connected to our lives. For the 10th episode, we'll get to know the Jawehia Casil community in Colombia, via Edinson Camayo, indigenous leader for the NASA nation and the project's coordinator. You've listened to the ninth episode of Routing for Communities, an audio journey tracing community connectivity around the world. This is the podcast of the Local Networks Initiative, a collective effort led by APC and Rizomatica. Production, Rádio Tertulia. Thanks, and see you next time.